Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. I must at this point say to the world, my voice is suffering due to, I don't know, uh, might be long COVID, it might be thyroid cancer, who knows. Anyway, um, Arthur Dent and Fenchurch have been chatting to Wonko the same, all about dolphins and his magic bowl. A bowl gifted to him by creatures unknown. The deep roar of the ocean, the break of waves on farther shores than thought confined, the silent thunders of the deep, and from among it voices calling, and yet not voices, humming, trillings, wordlings, and half-articulated songs of thought. Greetings, waves of greetings sliding back down into the inarticulate words breaking together. A crash of sorrow on the shores of earth. Waves of joy on where? A world indescribably found, indescribably arrived at, indescribably wet. A song of water. A fugue of voices now, clamouring explanations of a disaster, unavertable, a world to be destroyed, a surge of helplessness, a spasm of despair, a dying fall, again the break of words. And then the fling of hope, the finding of a shadow earth and the implications of enfolded time, submerged dimensions, the pull of parallels, the deep pull, the spin of will, the hurl and split of it, the fight, a new earth pulled into replacement, the dolphins gone. Then stunningly a single voice, quite clear, this bowl was brought to you by the campaign to save the humans. We bid you farewell. And then the sound of long, heavy, perfectly grey bodies rolling into an unknown, fathomless, deep, quietly giggling. That night they stayed outside the asylum and watched TV from inside it. This is what I want you to see, said Wonko the Sane when the news came round again. An old colleague of mine, he's over in your country, uh, running an investigation. Just watch. It was a press conference. I'm afraid I can't comment on the name Rain God at this present time, and we are calling him an example of a spontaneous paracausal meteorological phenomenon. Can you tell us what that means? I'm not altogether sure. Let's be straight here. If we find something we can't understand, we like to call it something you can't understand, or indeed pronounce. I mean, if we were just to let you go around calling him a rain god, uh, then that suggests that you know something we don't. And I'm afraid we couldn't have that. No, first we have to call it something which says it's ours, not yours. Then we set about finding some way of proving it's not what you said it is, but something we say it is. And if it turns out that you're right, you'll still be wrong, because we will simply call him supernormal, not paranormal or supernatural, because you think you know what those mean now. No, a supernormal incremental precipitation inducer. We'll probably want to shove a quasi in there somewhere to protect ourselves. Rain God. <laughs> Never heard such nonsense in my life. Admittedly, you wouldn't catch me going on holiday with him. 
Thanks, that'll be all for now, other than to say hi to Wonko if he's watching. On the way home, there was a woman sitting next to them on the plane who was looking at them rather oddly. They talked quietly to themselves. I still have to know, said Fenchurch, and I strongly feel that you know something that you're not telling me. Arthur sighed and took out a piece of paper. Do you have a pencil? he said. She dug around and found one. What are you doing, sweetheart? she said. After he had spent twenty minutes frowning, chewing the pencil, scribbling on the paper, crossing things out, scribbling again, chewing the pencil again and grunting irritably to himself. Trying to remember an address somebody once gave me. Your life would be an awful lot simpler, she said, if you bought yourself an address book. Finally, he passed the paper to her. You look after it, he said. She looked at it. Among all the scratchings and crossings out were the words Quintillus Quasgar Mountains, Servo Bopstri, Planet of Prelutan, Sun Zars, Galactic Sector QQ7, Active J Gamma. And what's there? Apparently, said Arthur, it's God's final message to his creation. That sounds a bit more like it, said Fenchurch. How do we get there? You really? Yes, said Fenchurch firmly. I really want to know. Arthur looked out of the little plexiglass window at the open sky outside. Excuse me, said the woman who had been looking at them rather oddly suddenly. I hope you don't think I'm rude. I get so bored on these long flights. It's, it's nice to talk to somebody. My name's Enid Klappelstein. I'm from Boston. <laughs> Tell me, do you fly a lot? They went to Arthur's house in the West Country, shoved a couple of towels and stuff in a bag, and then sat down to do what every galactic hitchhiker ends up spending most of their time doing. They waited for a flying saucer to come by. Friend of mine did this for 15 years, said Arthur, one night as they sat forlornly watching the sky. Who's that? Called Ford Prefect. He caught himself doing something he'd never really expected to do again. He wondered where Ford Prefect was. By an extraordinary coincidence, the following day, there were two reports in the paper, one concerning the most astonishing incident with a flying saucer, and the other about a series of unseemly riots in pubs. Ford Prefect turned up the day after that, looking hungover and complaining that Arthur never answered the phone. In fact, he looked extremely ill, not merely as if he'd just been pulled through a hedge backwards, but as if the hedge was being simultaneously pulled backwards through a combine harvester. He staggered into Arthur's sitting room, waving aside all efforts of support, which was an error, because the effort of waving caused him to lose his balance altogether, and Arthur eventually had to drag him to the sofa. Thank you, said Ford. Thank you very much. Have you, he said, and fell asleep for three hours. The faintest idea, he continued suddenly when he revived. How hard it is to tap into the British phone system for the blindies. I can see you haven't, so I'll tell you, he said. Over a very large mug of black coffee that you're about to make me. He followed Arthur wobbly into the kitchen. Stupid operators keep asking you where you're calling from, and you try and tell them Letchworth, and they say you couldn't be if you're coming in on that circuit. What are you doing? Making you some black coffee. Oh, Ford seemed oddly disappointed. He looked about the place forlornly. What's this, he said. Rice Krispies. And this? Paprika. 
I see, said Ford solemnly, and put the two items back down on top of the other. But that didn't seem to balance properly, so he put the other on top of the one, and that seemed to work. A little space lagged, he said. What was I saying? About not phoning from Letchworth. I wasn't. I explained this to the lady. Bugger Letchworth, I said. If that's your attitude, I am, in fact, calling from a sales scout ship of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation, currently on the sublight speed leg of a journey between the stars, known to your world, though not necessarily to you, dear lady. I said, dear lady, explained Ford Prefect, because I didn't want her to be offended by my implications that she was an ignorant cretin. Tactful, said Arthur Dent. Exactly, said Ford. Tactful. He frowned. Space lag, he said, is very bad for subclauses. You have to assist me again, he continued, by reminding me what I was talking about. Between the stars, said Arthur, known to your world, though not necessarily to you, dear lady, as... Pleiades Epsilon and Pleiades Zeta, concluded Ford triumphantly. This conversation, Lark, is quite a gas, isn't it? Have some coffee. Thank you. No. And the reason I said, why am I bothering you with it, rather than just dialing direct as I could, because we have some pretty sophisticated telecommunications equipment out here in the Pleiades, I can tell you, is that the penny-pinching son of a star beast piloting this son of a star beast starship insists that I call Collect. Can you believe that? And could she? I don't know. She'd hung up, said Ford by this time. So what do you suppose, he asked fiercely, I did next? I have no idea, Ford, said Arthur. Pity, said Ford. I was hoping you could remind me. I really hate those guys, you know. They really are the creeps of the cosmos, buzzing around the celestial infinite with their junky little machines that never work properly, or, when they do, perform functions that no sane man would require of them. And, he added savagely, go beep to tell you when they've done it. This was perfectly true, and is a very respectable view widely held by right-thinking people, who are largely recognisable as being right-thinking people by the mere fact that they hold this view. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in a moment of reasoned lucidity, which is almost unique among its current tally of 5,973,509 pages, says of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation products that it is very easy to be blinded to the essential uselessness of them by the sense of achievement you get from getting them to work at all. In other words, and this is the rock-solid principle on which the whole of the corporation's galaxy-wide success is founded, their fundamental design flaws are completely hidden by their superficial design flaws. And this guy, ranted Ford, was on a drive to sell more of them. His five-year mission to seek out and explore strange new worlds and sell advanced music substitute systems to their restaurants, elevators and wine bars, or if they didn't have restaurants, elevators and wine bars, yet to artificially accelerate their civilization growth until they bloody well did have. Where's that coffee? I threw it away. Make some more. I've now remembered what I did next. I saved civilization as we know it. I knew it was something like that. He stumbled determinedly back to the sitting room where he seemed to carry on talking to himself, tripping over the furniture and making beep-beep noises. A couple of minutes later, wearing his very placid face, Arthur followed him. Ford looked stunned.
"'Where have you been?' he demanded. "'Making some coffee,' said Arthur, still wearing his very placid face. "'He'd long ago realised that the only way of being in Ford's company successfully "'was to keep a large stock of very placid faces and wear them at all times. "'You missed the best bit,' raged Ford. "'You missed the bit where I jumped the guy. "'Now,' he said, "'I shall have to jump him all over again.' "'He hurled himself recklessly at a chair and broke it. It was better, he said sullenly, last time. He waved vaguely in the direction of another broken chair which he had already got trussed up on the dining table. I'll see, said Arthur, casting a placid eye over the trussed-up wreckage. And uh, what are all the ice cubes for? What? screamed Ford. What? You missed that beat too? That's the suspended animation facility. I put the guy in the suspended animation facility. Well, I had to, didn't I? So it would seem, said Arthur in his placid voice. Don't touch that, yelled Ford. Arthur, who was about to replace the phone, which was for some mysterious reason lying on the table off the hook, paused placidly. OK, said Ford, calming down. Listen to it. Arthur put the phone to his ear. It's the speaking clock, he said. Beep, 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 said Ford. Beep, beep, beep. I see, said Arthur, with every ounce of placidness that he could muster. Beep, 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 said Ford. It's exactly what is being heard all over that guy's spaceship while he sleeps in the ice going slowly round a little-known moon of Sassafras Magna, the London-speaking clock. I see, said Arthur again, and decided that now was the time to ask the big one. Why? he said acidly. With a bit of luck, said Ford, the phone bill will bankrupt the buggers. He threw himself sweating onto the sofa. Anyway, he said, dramatic arrival, don't you think? The flying saucer in which Ford Prefect had stowed away had stunned the world. Finally, there was no doubt, no possibility of mistake, no hallucinations, no mysterious CIA agents found floating in reservoirs. This time it was real. It was definite. It was quite definitely definite. It had come down with a wonderful disregard for anything beneath it and crushed a large area of some of the most expensive real estate in the world, including much of Harrods. The thing was massive, nearly a mile across. Some said dull silver in colour, pitted, scorched and disfigured with the scars of unnumbered vicious spice battles fought with savage forces by the light of suns unknown to man. The hatchway opened, crashed down through the Harrods' food halls, demolished Harvey Nichols, and with a final grinding scream of tortured architecture, toppled the Sheraton Park Tower. After a long, heart-stopping moment of internal crashes and grumbles of rending machinery, they marched out of it, down the ramp, an immense silver robot a hundred feet tall. It held up a hand. I come in peace, it said, adding after a long moment of further grinding. Take me to your lizard. Ford Prefect, of course, had an explanation for this as he sat with Arthur and watched the non-stop frenetic news reports on television, none of which had anything to say other than to record that the thing had done this amount of damage, which was valued at that moment of billions of pounds, and had killed this totally other number of people, and then say it again because the robot was doing nothing more than standing there, swaying very slightly and emitting short, incomprehensible error messages. It comes from a very ancient democracy, you see. 
You mean it comes from a world of lizards? No, said Fort, who by this time was a little more rational and coherent than he had been, having finally had the coffee forced down him. Nothing so simple. Nothing anything like so straightforward. On this world, the people are people, the leaders are lizards. The people hate the lizards, and the lizards rule the people. Odd, said Arthur, I thought you said it was a democracy. I did, said Ford, it is. So, said Arthur, hoping he wasn't sounding ridiculous, the obtuse, why don't the people get rid of the lizards? It honestly doesn't occur to them, said Ford. They've all got to vote, so they're all pretty much assumed that the government they voted in more or less approximates to the government they wanted. You mean they actually vote for the lizards? Oh, yes, said Ford, the shrug, of course. But, said Ford, going for the big one again, why? Because if they don't vote for a lizard, said Ford, the wrong lizard might get in. Got any gin? What? I said, said Ford, with an increasing air of urgency creeping into his voice, have you got any gin? Ford shrugged again. Some people say that the lizards are the best thing that ever happened to them, he said. They're completely wrong, of course, completely and utterly wrong, but someone's got to say it. That's terrible, said Arthur. Listen, bud, said Ford. If I had one Altarian dollar for every time I heard that one bit of the universe look at another bit of the universe and say that's terrible, I wouldn't be sitting here like a lemon looking for a gin. But I haven't, and I am. Anyway, what are you looking so placid and moon-eyed for? Are you in love? Arthur said yes, he was, and said it placidly. With someone who knows where the gin bottle is, do I get to meet her? He did, because Fenchurch came in at that moment with a pile of newspapers she'd been in the village to buy. She stopped in astonishment at the wreckage on the table and the wreckage from Beetlejuice on the sofa. Where's the gin? said Ford to Fenchurch. And to Arthur, what happened to Trillian, by the way? Ah, uh, this is Fenchurch, said Arthur awkwardly. There was nothing with Trillian. You must have seen her last. Oh, yeah, said Ford. She went off with Zaphod somewhere. They had some kids or something. Least he ended. I think that's what they were. Zaphod calmed down a lot, you know. Really, said Arthur, clustering hurriedly around Fenchurch to relieve her of her shopping. Yeah, said Ford. At least one of the heads is now saner than an emu on acid. Arthur, who is this, said Fenchurch. Ford Prefect, said Arthur. I may have mentioned him in passing. Chapter 37 For a total of three days and nights, the giant robot stood in stunned amazement, straddling the remains of Knightsbridge, swaying slightly and trying to work out a number of things. Government deputations came to see it. Ranting journalists by the truckload asked each other questions on air about what they thought of it. Flights of fighter bombers tried pathetically to attack it, but no lizards appeared. It scanned the horizon slowly. At night it was at its most spectacular, floodlit by teams of television crews who covered it continuously, as it continuously did nothing. It thought and thought, and eventually reached a conclusion. It would have to send out its service robots. It should have thought of that before, but it was having a number of problems. The tiny flying robots came screeching out of the hatchway one afternoon in a terrifying cloud of metal. They roamed the surrounding terrain, frantically attacking some things and defending others. 
One of them at last found a pet shop with some lizards, but it instantly defended the pet shop for democracy so savagely that little in the area survived. A turning point came when a crack team of flying screechers discovered the zoo in Regent's Park, and most particularly the reptile house. Learning a little caution from their previous mistakes in the pet shop, the flying drills and fretzels brought some of the larger and fatter iguanas to the giant silver robot, who tried to conduct high-level talks with them. Eventually, the robot announced to the world that despite the full, frank and wide-ranging exchange of views, the high-level talks had broken down, the lizards had been retired, and that is, the robot would take a short holiday somewhere and for some reason selected Bournemouth. Ford Prefect watched it on TV, nodded, laughed and had another beer. Immediate preparations were made for its departure. The flying toolkits screeched and sawed and drilled and fried things with a light throughout the day and all through the night time. And in the morning, stunningly, a giant mobile gantry started to roll westward on several roads simultaneously with the robot standing on it, supported within the gantry. Westward it crawled like a strange carnival buzzed around by its servants and helicopters and news coaches scything through the land till at last it came to Bournemouth, where the robot slowly freed itself of its transport systems and braces and went and lay for ten days on the beach. It was, of course, by far the most exciting thing that had ever happened to Bournemouth. Crowds gathered daily along the perimeter, which was staked out and guarded as the robot's recreation area, and tried to see what it was doing. Motorboats prowled up and down the shore to see what it was doing. It was doing nothing. It was lying on the beach. It was lying a little awkwardly on its face. It is a journalist from a local paper who, late one night, managed to do what no one else in the world had so far managed, which was to strike up a brief, intelligible conversation with one of the service robots guarding the perimeter. It was an extraordinary breakthrough. I think there is a story in it, confided the journalist over a cigarette shared through a steel link fence, but it needs a good angle. I've got a little list of questions here, he went on, rummaging awkwardly in the inner pocket. Perhaps you could uh, get him, it, uh, whatever you call him, to run through them quickly? The little flying ratchet screwdriver said it would see what it could do, and screeched off. A reply was never forthcoming. Curiously, however, the questions on the piece of paper more or less exactly matched the questions that were going through the massive, battle-scarred, industrial-quality circuits of the robot's mind. They were these. How do you feel about being a robot? How does it feel to be from outer space? And how do you like Bournemouth? Early the following day, things started to be packed up, and within a few days it became apparent that the robot was preparing to leave for good. The point is, said Fenchurch to Ford, can he get us on board? Ford looked wildly at his watch. I have some serious unfinished business to attend to, he exclaimed. Chapter 38 Crowds thronged as close as they could to the giant silver craft. The immediate perimeter was fenced off and patrolled by the tiny flying service robots. Staked out around that was the army, which had been completely unable to breach that inner perimeter, but were damned if anyone was going to breach them. 
They, in turn, were surrounded by a cordon of police, though whether they were there to protect the public from the army or the army from the public or to guarantee the giant ship's diplomatic community and prevented getting parking tickets was entirely unclear and the subject of much debate. The inner perimeter fence was now being dismantled. The army stirred uncomfortably, uncertain of how to react to the fact that the reason for their being there seemed as if it was simply going to get up and go. The giant robot had lurched back aboard the ship at lunchtime, and now it was five o'clock in the afternoon, and no further signs had been seen from it. Much had been heard, more grindings and rumblings from deep within the craft, the music of a million hideous malfunctions, but the sense of tense expectation among the crowd was born of the fact that they expected to be disappointed. This wonderful, extraordinary thing had come into their lives, now it was simply going to go without them. Two people were particularly aware of this sensation, Arthur and Fenchurch, scanning the crowd anxiously, unable to find Ford Prefect in it anywhere, or any sign that he had the slightest intention of being there. How reliable is he? asked Fenchurch in a sinking voice. How reliable? asked Arthur. He gave a hollowed laugh. How shallow is the ocean? he asked. How cold is the sun? The last parts of the robot's gantry transport are being carried on board, and the few remaining sections of the perimeter fence were now stacked at the bottom of the ramp, waiting to follow them. The soldiers on guard around the ramp bristled meaningfully, orders were barked back and forth, hurried conferences were held, but nothing, of course, could be done about any of it. Hopelessly and with no clear plan now, Arthur and Fenchurch pushed forward through the crowd. But since the whole crowd was also trying to push forward through the crowd, this got them nowhere. And within a few minutes, nothing remained outside the ship. Every last link of the fence was aboard. A couple of flying fretzels in the spirit level seemed to do one last check around the site and then screamed in through a giant hatchway themselves. A few seconds passed. The sounds of mechanical disarray from within changed in intensity, and slowly, heavily, the huge steel ramp began to lift itself back out of the Harrods' food halls. The sound that accompanied it was the sound of thousands of tense, excited people being completely ignored. Hold it! A megaphone barked from a taxi that screeched to the halt on the edge of the milling crowd. There has been, barked the megaphone, a major scientific break-in! Through, uh, breakthrough, it corrected itself. The door flew open and a small man from somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice leapt out wearing a white coat. Hold it, he shouted again, and this time brandished a short squat black rod with lights on it. The lights winked briefly, the ramp paused in its ascent, and then in obedience to the signals from the thumb, which half the electronic engineers in the galaxy were constantly trying to find fresh ways of jamming, while the other half were constantly trying to find fresh ways of jamming the jamming signals, slowly ground its way downwards again. Ford Prefect grabbed the megaphone from out of the taxi and started bawling at the cloud through it. Make way, he shouted. Make way, please. This is a major scientific breakthrough. Uh, you and you, get the equipment from the taxi. Completely at random, he pointed at Arthur and Fenchurch, who wrestled their way back out of the crowd and clustered urgently around the taxi. 
All right, I want you to clear a passage, please, for some important piece of scientific equipment, boomed Ford. Just everybody keep calm. It's all under control. There's nothing to see. It's merely a major scientific breakthrough. Keep calm now. Important scientific equipment. Clear the way. Hungry for new excitement, delighted at this sudden reprieve from disappointment, the crowd enthusiastically fell back and started to open up. Arthur was a little surprised to see what was printed on the boxes of important scientific equipment in the back of the taxi. Hang your coat over them, he muttered to Ben Church as he heaved them out to her. Hurriedly, he manoeuvred out of the large supermarket cart, which was also jammed against the back seat. It clattered to the ground, and together they loaded the boxes into it. Clear a path, please, shouted Ford again. Everything's under proper scientific control. He said you'd pay, said the taxi driver to Arthur, who dug out some notes and paid him. There was a distant sound of police sirens. Move along there, shouted Ford, and no one will get hurt. The crowd surged and closed behind them again, as frantically they pushed and hauled the rattling supermarket cart through the rubble towards the ramp. It's all right, Ford continued to bellow. There's nothing to see. It's all over. None of this is actually happening. Clear the way, please, boomed a police megaphone from the back of the crowd. There's been a break-in. Clear the way. Breakthrough, yelled Ford in competition. A scientific breakthrough. This is the police. Clear the way. Scientific equipment. Clear the way. Police, let us through. Walkman, yelled Ford, and pulled out a dozen miniature tape players from his pockets and tossed them to the ground. The resulting seconds of utter confusion allowed them to get the supermarket cart to the right edge of the ramp and to haul it up to the lip of it. Hold tight, muttered Ford, and released a button on his electronic thumb. Beneath them, the huge ramp shuddered and began slowly to heave its way upward. Okay, he said, as the milling crowd dropped away beneath them and they started to lurch their way along the tilting ramp into the bells of the ship. Looks like we're on our way. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk. Mm-hmm.